You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas, from BleacherReport.com. And joining us, as always, from USA Today and MMAJunkie.com, it's Ben Folks. Well, Ben, we finally hit the big time. Uh, we got some dude wipes in the studio, in the CME studio, so it's like we're running a professional operation over here. Now we can just uh, start wiping each other down. Is that, is that what happens? All the big My podcasts correctly? have dude wipes in the studio. You go in to record with Swizz Beats, noted yeah. UFC fan, uh, dude wipes everywhere. Now, uh, it was interesting because when we were talking about this on Fight Night and my wife mentioned that they their marketing seems to be kind of narrow-sided, that they're just trying to basically tell tell dudes like, hey, you need to wipe your balls or something with these things just periodically throughout the day. Yeah. Uh, and my wife's genius idea was they, that you should be marking them to women so you can wipe down your dude. He yeah. comes home from yes. softball or something, got to wipe him down with a dude wipe. As is her practice, your wife came up with like a 10 times better marketing strategy than whatever company this is that just spend a bunch of time trying to figure out how to market dude wipes. The thing that I just realized is how much money they're saving by not putting the, the back end of the D's and the E in the dude wipes logo. <laughs> That's, and they pass the savings on to you. That's right. Uh, we got these dude wipes in the mail from listener, uh, uh, Colleen H. And, uh, she, what else did she send us over there? You, uh, check that out. Well, we got a bunch of, uh, weird stuff here, but what I want to talk about First is this product from Fresh Body, uh, which seems to be a lotion of some sort, and the the name of the lotion, and I am not I am not kidding you here, is Fresh Balls. It's just called Fresh Balls. Yeah, Chad. read read what it says there at the uh, at the bottom, where it says hygiene for groin area. Is that what you're referring to? Yes, where it says hygiene for groin area. Yeah, uh, pretty. It makes it pretty clear exactly what you're supposed to do uh, with this stuff. Um, basically like here, here's the description. Fresh balls prevents wetness and the uncomfortable feeling of being sweaty and sticky as well as chafing in the groin and other problem areas. Although clearly mainly the groin because it's called fresh balls, uh, without the powdery mess. So I guess a solution to all the problems that you've been complaining about off air recently well, it's not easy to record these shows. No. Man. Although now, I got to say, with all this product we got lying around, our balls are set. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we basically are just going to be a couple of really hygienic dudes up in here. We got those from uh, Colleen H. So thanks for all the weird stuff. Thanks, I guess. Colleen. Uh, Although, be honest, wait, though. Is this, like, a, is this a commentary of, on, on what she imagines our hygiene to be like? Just poor? Yeah. I mean, she wouldn't be too far off there. Part of you wants to rip open one of those dude wipes and at least just see what it smells like. I'm, un- it? I'm uncomfortable with how much it just resembles like a condom in its packaging. Um, but let's see. Let's see what's going on in this here. This is some live product testing. Uh, ben also, Folks currently using a dude wipe. Uh, it makes clear that it's flushable, vitamin E and aloe, uh, and one wipe is 44 square inches. In case you just wanted to know all the possible goddamn 44 facts. 44 square inches. Yeah, let's unfold this. Basically, right now, it just looks like the little wipe that you'd get when you're eating ribs or Seeming something. Seeming like a wet or, wipe right yeah, now. Yeah, like on an airplane. 
A um, little bit larger, maybe, to accommodate the actually, larger dudes. Now, now that I'm looking at it, it's really not like 44 square inches of dude wipe is not that much dude wipe. Well, it's, that's why you get so many in the package. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I feel like what we're looking at here is a glorified, like, wet wipe. I can smell it from here, too. Smells like a wet wipe. Here. No, that's... Put it on your face. Okay, now I've got it. Now I'm using the dude wipe. There I am, fresh and clean now. Uh, we also got some weird uh, UK candies, British candies in the mail from Danny Fitzgerald. Uh, what's over there? He sent us a... Uh, a it looks cashew like cashew and blueberry. Yeah, we got a cashew and blueberry eat natural bar. Well, that's got uh, Ben Folk's name written with, all over uh, it. A yogurt coating, and yogurt is spelled weird. Uh, and then we've got this Cadbury Marvelous Creations banana caramel crisp, uh, and marvelous is spelled weird. So, yep, that's foreign candy, all right. Thank you. Well, thanks to everybody who sends us stuff in the mail. We do appreciate it. Uh, Unless you're sending it as a commentary on our hygiene. Well, in in thing, which case, then we're, we're kind of upset. But we also are going to have to ask ourselves some hard questions. Maybe. Now we, we can rip into this British candy like a couple of rabid animals and not have to worry about cleanup. Because we got the dude wipes. <laughs> That's right. Uh, just want to let everybody know it's been contacting us about the uh, White Elephant essay winners. Last week, we put up the winning essays in the uh, narrative essay category on comainevent.com. And uh, this week, probably tomorrow, we're going to put up the winners of the persuasive essay category. Uh, just waiting to hear back from one of the winners about some of his visual aids that I wanted to make sure we got up there uh, in the in the correct order and and uh, that we got all the visual aids. Are you over there smelling your fingers because they hands, smell like dude wipes? My hands smell like dude wipes now. I feel like that's going to stick with me for a while. Yeah. Smell your hands. I, no, I don't want to. The face you made was enough for me. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks again for the dude wipes. Man, this week's music comes to us from listener Jay Schroeder and his band, the Apache Revolver. Now, for starters, you're going to want to do yourself a favor and look up the Apache Revolver on Wikipedia to see the weapon that inspired the name of the band because it's really something. And second, the band describes itself as a surf rock slash black metal band, which huh. is not a combo that I've ever heard before. Well, the Apache Revolver seems totally sweet. It is the greatest thing of all time. <laughs> Make sure you look up the, the Apache Revolver on uh, Wikipedia. And if you like the music of the band, the Apache Revolver, it's available for free download at the apacherevolver.bandcamp.com and via their website, apacherevolvermusic.com. Uh, three rounds, as usual, this week for the co-main event podcast. In round number one, Chris Weidman is fucking legit. Any questions? And then round two, in which your intrepid podcast hosts will spend, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes discussing a 16-second fight. And in round number three, Frankie Edgar was last seen leaving the Mandalay Bay Event Center on Sunday night, kicking puppies and taking candy away from little kids. All that plus Master Tweet Theater, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But right now, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail comes to us from Matt Robertson. He writes, With all the odd events taking place at UFC 175, Stefan Struve stands out the most. With the heavyweight division being so weak, where do you see Struve's future? Now this was a uh, scary and disquieting incident 
weekend, which happened, I guess, during the UFC 175 broadcast, where Stefan Struve, who was returning after like a year out of action because uh, it turned out he had a congenital heart defect, uh, he was set to make his return against Matt Mitrione at UFC 175, uh, but uh, collapsed backstage and had what the UFC press release uh, referred to as a near fainting episode. I think that's what they called it. Yeah, and they also uh, framed it as a panic attack kind of thing, that it was not so much physical necessarily as it was psychological, and that he was okay afterwards and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but it does make you really wonder. Uh, and I think that actually Dana White showed uh, a somewhat surprising amount of empathy afterwards uh, when talking about the situation and brought up some some good and legitimate concerns uh, when he talked about, you know, what do you do with Stefan Schrub going forward? Because if you put him in another fight, you rebook him, uh, you don't want to do the thing where you tell him, like, all right, we'll give you another chance, but you can't screw it up again yet. You can't pull this again. Um, because what if he feels like he needs to pull out of it? What if he feels like he actually, you know, physically can't go out there and do it? Like, these are real concerns that he might have, and you don't want to put that kind of pressure on him, which seems like it would likely only make things worse. So it is really tough to to tell what might happen with this guy. Yeah, and I guess in a weird way, either panic attack or medication-related side effect, which was another theory I saw being kicked around, uh, would kind of be the best-case scenario for Stefan Struve because you wouldn't want it to be heart condition-related. Uh, I think that the best-case scenario for him would be like, you know, uh, he's coming back after a year off. He just had all this turmoil in his personal life. I read the statement that he released. It seemed like his dad just passed away fairly recently. and. Oh, no. uh, he was dealing with a, with a bunch of stuff. So, uh, you hope it's unrelated to the, to the heart condition and that Stefan Struve is able to come back and have a, uh, you know, a, a normal career, just uh, not only because the heavyweight division needs young, good fighters, but also because Stefan Struve seems like a good dude. I've, yeah. I've talked to him a couple of times. I wrote a feature story about him and, uh, you know, he's a, he's a young guy, but he seems to really have his shit together and he's, uh, He's a very professional-minded fighter and and uh, a likable guy, and you hope that everything comes out okay for him. Uh, here's a theory: if as long as we're going to get into the crazy theory uh, territory, what if like his water bottle was drugged uh, by one Derek the Black Beast Lewis, just so he could free up Mat Matrione uh, for uh, a potential future fight? Oh, I just wow. blew your mind. Conspiracy time on the co-main event podcast. Kind of a star turn for Derek the Black Beast Lewis. He's going to get that Matrione, this, this, whoever he is. This past week, uh, he goes out there and knocks out a uh, highly regarded young prospect, Guto Inesench, uh, and uh, Nailed it. And then cuts a dandy of a promo on Matt Matrione and then uh, goes to the – did you see him at the press conference? Did you watch the press conference? No. First of all, Beast shirts, awesome. Okay. I want me one of those uh, Black Beast Derek Lewis shirts. I feel uh, like you're going to need to be wary of the context in which you wear it, but all right. Goes to the press conference wearing a camouflage Houston Texans hat, which was awesome, and then Karen Bryant tries to ask him about his past. She like, opens up with this question where she's like, you know, I don't know if you wanted to talk about your past, and he just shakes his head. No. <laughs> and then he does go on to talk a little bit about how he believes that MMA saved his life and that he was going down a uh, a bad path and got involved in the fight game and now feels like uh, he's on the right track personally and professionally. Uh, I'm into it. I got to say, like, this is the kind of dude 
Uh, this is the kind of personality that the heavyweight division needs right now. The guy's, first of all, under 30, which is a huge plus for anyone in the 265-pound class. Uh, John Anik referred to him as a throwback heavyweight in many ways during <laughs> you know, the fight, which is not – I don't think that's a compliment, but, you know. You know there are several things about that, that like about the the narrative surrounding him in this fight that should make you concerned. Like the, the mention of him as a throwback heavyweight, I believe Bruce Buffer introduced him as a brawler, which is usually a terrible – sign in MMA. Uh, it's only in the heavyweight division where the ranks are so thin where you, you can be that kind of guy and it's still like, well, all right, you could probably just put your hand on somebody's chin. Who knows what can happen, man? Yeah, I, I agree with you. At this point, you can't really argue with the results there to go out and, and beat a guy that a lot of people uh, were, were trying to say was the you know the new hotness at heavyweight. Uh, I agree with you that there may be some concerns about, about Derek Lewis's style, but uh, everything else... I'm into it. I gotta say, are you, are you into how uh, he is just gonna keep talking about Cain Velasquez as if that's a, a realistic option for him? Yes, <laughs> I knew of you course. would be. I knew it. Next question this week comes to us from Joe Anitra. He writes in the Tiago Santos Uriah Hall fight. If Santos implemented foot stomps on Hall after knowing the foot injury, knowing about the foot injury, would that be considered a smart move or a bush league tactic? Of course, Uriah Hall who uh, for years, uh, well, maybe not for years, but throughout his UFC career, uh, had been dogged by this public uh, sentiment, I guess started by the UFC president, that mm -hmm. he was not mentally strong enough to be a fighter, goes out this weekend and breaks his damn toe pretty early on in their fight. Badly. Bone sticking through the skin, which, if it's if I'm the ringside doctor, would probably result in a stoppage. Uh but, you know, continues to fight and, and gets the victory over Tiago Santos. Um, there's been a lot of talk about this, this foot stomp stuff. Uh, you know, I think it's okay. I think it would be okay to do it because I think we've, uh, you know, you've agreed to the rules. If, if, uh, uh, if a guy goes out with a bad knee, you're going to kick him in it, right? If, if a guy has a bad ankle, you're going to kick him in it. You're going to try yeah. to get him in a, in an ankle lock. I feel like, for one thing, if you stomp that dude's foot, after everybody has seen like his toe all mangled, you better beat him. You you maybe had better kill him uh, <laughs> because he will come back looking for you at a later date. Kill him. Kill his brothers if they're able-bodied. That's right. Kill everyone in his family who could come seeking revenge. That's right. And if he has like an infant son or something, don't overlook him. Like he will be the prime candidate to grow up and kill you years from now. Uh, so there's that concern. Uh, also, I mean, as far as what the reaction would be from fans and media, I think that we would be forced to respect the move under the logic that you just laid out. I also think that then you would probably be forever branded a psychopath, just an, a cold, unfeeling monster. Which, if Which, you're if you're Tiago Santos, is better than nothing. Yeah, right? no, it's not the worst thing that can happen to you. I mean, probably better that than to have Dana White brand you a pussy and have that following you around all the time. Uh, everybody always constantly questioning your heart and your desire to fight. I'd have to say though, for Uriah Hall, that jacket don't fit no more. No, absolutely. I don't never. I don't know if it ever really did. I mean, I felt felt like that was kind of unfair to begin with, uh, and it seemed like once that got out there, we were all watching him through that lens, and we kind of twisted what we saw to fit that that perception uh but hopefully that dies for good with that performance i'm curious though you said that if you were the ringside doctor uh you'd, you'd stop that based on that that toe injury well that's why you're there right like the dude who's in the fight is always going to tell you he's fine 
as long as he can go out and there his, and continue fighting. And his corner's going to tell you that it was like that before, which yeah. is kind of an awesome move. <laughs> All right, well, here's the thing. I mean, it's not just that it's that it's broken, that it's dislocated, whatever it was, but the bone is sticking through the skin, which would seem to me would present numerous problems uh, with, with making it okay for him to go out there, like not the least of which is that you've got now got an open wound and, and an exposed broken bone, and you're out there walking around on this canvas that other dudes have been sweating and bleeding on, uh, it seems like you would have not only a high risk of infection, but like a, a high risk of further damaging the toe to the point where you don't know what's going to happen to it. Okay, that's a fair point. The thing that people are going to bring up when you say a fight should be stopped due to a broken toe is what about dudes break their hands all the time and we expect them to keep fighting? Like if you if quit a dude on a broke stool, his hand and one of his bones of his hand was sticking out through his glove. Well, okay, through his glove. I mean, he's got hand wraps and a glove on. He, for all you know, everybody might have a bone sticking out of their hand at all times. So, and you just can't see it because of the, the glove and the hand wraps. I don't know what, what you're arguing. Here. Well, that, like if a dude has a, has an obviously broken hand with a bone sticking out of his thumb, let's say, let's say it breaks his thumb okay. and the bone is sticking out. What do you think happens? <laughs> Nothing good. Uh, you know, I think that at that point his corner is like, nah, man, his thumb is always jacked up like that. It was like that before. It's an old childhood thing. He did it at camp. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it just seems like one of those things where, uh, we all kind of respond to it in this visceral way because you gross look at your goddamn toe and yet way worse stuff happens to people all the time that we can't really see whether brain stuff or like, you know, more internal stuff that is probably way more dangerous uh, and worrisome. But just because it's not as visible, we don't react the same way. The same thing how we'll see dudes get concussed all night long and it's awesome and we'll show the replay and cheer. But then watch the dude uh, against Robert Drysdale on the prelims uh, last night in the the tough finale get his knee wrenched all weird uh when robert drysdale takes his back and is standing up with a body triangle and you're like oh no not his knee i mean it seems like that's one of the less concerning things that can happen to people yeah fair, fair point fair point i'm just saying bone sticking through the skin i would say of almost any part of the body i think you should be able to call it off and not have to worry about backlash no, he did it uh, six weeks ago. Stubbed his toe in the middle of the night. It's fine. Next question this week comes to us from Chris Shell. He writes, man, watching Nick Newell versus Justin Gaethje was rough. I'm as inspired by Newell's toughness and determination as anyone else, but watching that was tough. Newell couldn't block shots to his left side, and his physical disability limits his offensive attacks. If you were a close relative of Newell's, would you advise him to stop fighting? Uh, you know, I saw a lot of this reaction after the Justin Gaethje-Nick Newell fight at the World Series of Fighting event on Saturday afternoon. Um, and, you know, I, I guess I just keep coming back to the idea, like, if you have already um, made up your mind that you support Nick Newell competing in mixed martial arts, uh, which I do. I, th I think that it's his choice and his right to go out there and compete. Then I think you have to kind of own the consequences. And, uh, you know, I've watched the fight twice now and, and, uh, he did get pretty badly battered by Justin Gaethje, uh, who looks awesome, by the way, and, and seems like a super good lightweight prospect for the World Series of Fighting. Yeah, but it's at not the like same time, some chump. I mean, he's done that to several other people who have two hands. Right. And at the same time, I think that the sort of outcry on social media and stuff has outweighed the, the actual, uh, uh, violence of the fight. Uh, I watched it again today and it's really not that bad. Like Newell really clearly obviously wins the first round, but it's also not uncompetitive. Like he, he, you know, m makes it look like he belongs there for the first round. And then obviously comes out in the second round and gets kind of uh, battered and defeated by a better fighter. But I mean, I think that could, could happen to anybody. And I mean, I think if you, 
believe in the theory of what mixed martial arts is supposed to be a contest where uh, any, you know, there, there's a very diverse array of techniques that you can use striking, grappling, submissions, punching, kicking, all that stuff. Then uh, you, you got to support a guy like Nick Newell's right to go out there and, uh, and compete because you know, he, uh, in this sport, like he, he could thrive. He's, he was undefeated headed into this fight. Right. Yeah. And, I, uh, you know, he's a kind of a beast on the ground. So I think if you believe in what MMA is supposed to be like, uh, you, you got to kind of stick up for Nick Newell's right to be there. Well, and I also think that, uh, we're doing this thing. A lot of people are doing this thing that we hear in this question here. Oh, he couldn't, because of his disability, he couldn't block shots to that side. Uh, and as if the, this same exact thing couldn't have happened to a guy uh, who had two hands and, and two full arms. I mean, right. that, that or can, frankly, everyone else that's fought Justin Gaethje. Yeah, right? that, that that exact kind of scenario can happen to. You. I don't think that he that it's necessarily a direct result of the disability. I mean, he has enough of that arm that he can block using the same blocking techniques that most people use in MMA. I mean, if you watch an MMA, people don't use the same kind of uh, just covering up behind the guard technique that you can use in boxing where you have bigger gloves that doesn't really work as well in MMA. So it's not necessarily the lack of the hand that's that's causing that, I think. Uh, and in his previous fights, he has shown the ability to make great adjustments uh, that ha have benefited him quite well. I don't think just because he loses one fight, you can turn around and say, okay, that's it. Ex this experiment is over. Uh, I, I mean, I think you, if you, like you said, if you support mixed martial arts and what it's supposed to be doing, uh, then you got to support his right to get out there. Uh, and Nick Newell, I think, is, is an awesome dude. And one of the my favorite things about Nick Newell from my own personal experience with him was, I don't know if you remember when, I think he was in uh, the XFC, uh, was that it, before this one, and he had won their championship and was trying to make a move to a bigger organization because his contract was up, uh, and the XFC was trying to get him into some other fight, and the promoter of the XFC, uh, John Prisco, I think it was, was kind of trying to go out there in the media and say, oh, he's scared. Nick Newell doesn't want this fight against this other guy. That's what he's, he's trying to get out of here because he's scared of this guy. Uh, and I talked to John Prisco, and then I talked to, to Nick Newell about it, and we were doing the interview, and he was kind of making his case like, look, this is a career thing for me. Like, I want to get in a bigger organization, make more money. Uh, it's definitely not that I'm scared of this guy. And then, you know, at the end of the interview, I did the thing that I'll kind of do. We're like, okay, do you have any other thing you want to add or anything I missed or you don't think I, I touched on? Uh, and he asked in what seemed a really sincere voice, do you think I'm scared? And I was like, no, I, I don't really get that impression. He's like, yeah. I don't, I just wanted to make sure that nobody, uh, no reasonable people actually thought that because if you look at what I've been doing in my life, why would I be scared of this one guy? Uh, and it was just like, all right, this is, this is a dude worth watching and paying attention to. <laughs> Well, that's going to do it for Listener Mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, or a concern that you'd like to air to the Co-Main Event podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You can go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says Email the Podcast. While you're there, you can also sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to fill you in on the MMA news that we miss from Monday through Friday. And hell, on, on Big Fight Nights, you even get a special audio extra emailed to you late at night from me and Ben sitting around huddled in his basement talking into my cell phone uh, with our initial uh, re reactions and, and comments on, on uh, big time pay-per-view events. Not creepy at all. No, man. Just, you know, your phone buzzing at 2 a.m., your significant others like, who's that, baby? Oh, nothing. It's just Chad and Ben emailing you from the basement. All right. Well, that's going to do it, though. We're going to get started with round number one right now. Thank you.
Well, Ben, Chris Weidman served up a huge side of shut the fuck up to all the haters this weekend uh, when he went out there and uh, defeated the former light heavyweight champion Lyoto Machida in the main event of UFC 175. Uh, retaining his middleweight title by unanimous decision. Uh, I guess if you didn't already know, it seems like Chris Weidman might be super, super good at fighting. And uh, How about that? Now, if you look at the guy's record, back-to-back wins over Anderson Silva during, during 2013 and then a win over Lyoto Machida uh, summer of 2014. Not to mention losses to nobody. Losses to nobody. He's now 12-0. and 0. Uh, Pretty impressive. Really damn impressive. I mean, especially I think this is going to be one of those uh, revisionist history things as we go on in MMA. If Weidman is still the champ in two or three years, you're going to find like nobody willing to admit that they ever doubted him back when he had back-to-back wins over Anderson Silva. Nobody will admit to thinking that that was a fluke or to kind of being as dismissive about it as people have been. Yeah, that's you're probably right about that. Uh, and I, you know, I think I, I mean, I guess haters are going to hate. Trademark. Wow. Uh, your, your grandfather has been paying attention to the internet, everybody. <laughs> registered trademark. Uh, but at this point, it's kind of hard to find anything, uh, from bell to bell to, to dislike about Chris Weidman. I think, you know, he's, uh, he kind of slowed down toward the end of this fight, but I think that that's going to happen in a 25 minute fight where you have a, a torrid pace and, and you're doing the kind of stuff that he was doing. Uh, getting kicked in the body a bunch. Yeah. Good doing the kind of stuff that you're, that he was doing to Leoto Machida. And, and you make a good point. Leoto Machida's best offense up to the, you know, throughout the fight had been shots to the body and it did look like that started to catch up, uh, with, with Chris Weidman a little bit. I mean, how much do you think of, of the inability to, take this guy seriously as the best middleweight in the world stems from a people having their feelings hurt by the fact that he went out and beat, uh, you know, the, a guy that a lot of people had, uh, anointed sort of a deity in, in our sport. And, uh, B the fact that, you know, when you watch Weidman fight, he doesn't do anything that blows your doors off, right? He doesn't, you know, he doesn't do anything that lights your hair on fire, but at the same time, he's just really, really, really good at all of the stuff that he does do. I I think that that's probably part of it. Uh, I also think, you know, his, his personality is not, uh, necessarily like what you'd expect from the guy who's going to be this great undefeated champion. He doesn't really stand out a whole lot in that regard. It's just like a tough ass wrestler from Long Island, uh, which I don't know if that's, enough of a novelty anymore in MMA for people to really pay that close attention to it. I mean, I don't know if you saw, I retweeted it, but uh, the the dude who is like the gossip or entertainment columnist for uh, one of the newspapers in Las Vegas uh, tweeted out this photo of Chris Weidman showing up to his after party at some swanky Vegas nightclub in basically just like a Hanes t-shirt uh, from the look of it. You're like, all right, that about sums it up. Wait, that's not Norm, is it, from Sydney? Oh, yeah, 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 Norm. Yeah, Norm, Norm Clark. That guy's from Montana. Oh, is he? He's With from, the eye patch? Yeah, he's from Sydney. Sydney, Montana. Really? I believe, yeah. Is he also uh, an international spy? Uh, I'm not allowed to talk about it. Okay. If you're not actually a Montana native, I can't tell you. Okay. Uh, well, I mean, but I think that's all kind of part of the what's going on with Chris Weidman is people are kind of slower than usual to come around to the idea that he was awesome. If he was a guy with a pretty Tony personality and uh, grooming habits, 
uh, or, or Conor McGregor kind of style out in the media, I feel like people would would be quicker to embrace this idea of him as the guy charging through the ranks and just putting people away. But it's also, I think, like you said, a little bit of his style. I, I was really interested reading uh, Jack Slack's breakdown of this uh, for Fightland that he was just kind of pointing out. Uh, how Weidman did so many things well against Machida that other people are never able to do against him, which is just kind of slowly trapping him into smaller and smaller zones in the octagon without just spending all night chasing him around until you eventually walk right into one of his punches. And and Weidman didn't do that. And as we said before, uh, right after the fight, he, he seems to be continually just checking off more of those boxes. Now we know he can take a punch. You go out there and you're Machida and you, you blow your wad at the end of the fight trying to finish him, and he gives you the old, yeah, come here, come, come, come here and give me a little bit more of that, uh, and then just keeps marching right right out towards you. I mean, that's got to be a little disheartening. Do you think for Weidman we need to do more with Ray Longo and Matt Serra? I don't think we need to do less. I'm going to say that. In terms of satisfying the, uh, the kind of... Uh, uh, his inability to move the needle, I guess you would say, in interviews and uh, PR settings. I mean, maybe you put Weidman, uh, white towel around his neck, <laughs> belt like over one shoulder, but kind of standing in the background while Sarah and wearing Longo wearing their track suits are standing out in front of him. And they're sort of playing the Bobby the Brain Heenan slash Paul Heyman role. A little bit of Jimmy Hart in there, pointing at his biceps. Pointing at his biceps and just being like, I think the guy is going to end up getting crushed. That kind of thing. I mean, I don't know if you saw uh, Ray Longo was on MMA Junkie Radio today, uh, and it sounded like he had just been yelling at people constantly since uh, Saturday night. Uh, his voice seemed to be kind of shot there. But, I mean, I do think that that is – that doesn't hurt any. I mean, part of the, the enjoyment for me watching that fight was hoping, oh, man, I hope it doesn't end in this round so we get to go back to Weidman's Corner and hear Ray Longo talking about how Machida is going to get fucking ballsy now. That shit is awesome. I, I I could go for definitely a lot more of that. And I mean, if you've if you've got I don't know an internet streaming service that runs for your <laughs> for your fight company, how do Matt, Sarah, and Ray Longo not have their own show? Yeah, just set up just a camera a, in the yes, gym. Exactly, reality show. Two cameras so you can cut back and forth between the two of them. You get a GoPro so Ray Longo can can do video diaries after he goes home to what I assume is his one-room apartment with fight posters tacked up everywhere. I, I always just assumed he had a cot in the back of the gym. Yeah, he's sleeping in the medical uh, closet. Uh, I think that'd be awesome for Fight Pass. Some of that uh, exclusive programming they're talking about. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I don't know. If we need just like, have you looked at some of their like what they consider like their shows, like their exclusive Fight Pass shows? Uh, You're forgetting a, an important detail here. <laughs> Come on, you, you you've at least seen what's on Fight Pass. I've seen the commercials. Well, if you go on there, they have like this little tab for like original programming or whatever. I, don't, I can't remember exactly what they call it now. Um, and they have a bunch of different shows, like with a bunch of different like names, like for these shows. And the names all kind of sound cool to the point where you're like, oh, what is that? Like, I should check that out. But it's all basically just pre-fight interviews, like just repackaged pre-fight interviews and not even a whole lot like post-fight, which I think is the kind of thing that you could really take advantage of, of if you have the streaming service and you are the organization that can tell these guys, hey, I know you just finished fighting, but we want to follow you to your after party or we want to do this interview with you at another time other than just like the two weeks before your fight. Like that's what we, the media, get stuck doing because we don't have the same leverage over the fighters. They could do so much more awesome stuff like this and they just don't do it. They just stick a bunch of weird uh, different names on what are essentially the same old pre-fight interviews we've always seen. How about Ultimate Pfizer Fighter Season 21 featuring Matt Serra and Ray Longo? 
We just like totally repackage it. We do it in, in Long Island instead of Vegas, instead of having these guys living in a house that they're just hanging out with Matt Sarah and Ray Longo. And I don't care. At the end, maybe Matt Sarah and Ray Longo just pick who the champions are. What do you think? <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Uh, and then the, everybody goes out for like a meatball dinner. <laughs> well, every night they go out for a meatball <laughs> dinner. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Lyoto Machida before we, uh, we wrap up this round. I guess we could talk about Vitor Belfort too, but I don't know how much time we have left. Uh, this was kind of Machida's chance to go out there and, and, uh, vault himself into rarefied air along with Randy Couture and BJ Penn as the only three guys in UFC history to win titles in, in different weight classes. Uh, I don't think that he certainly came out of this looking, uh, spent or done. I think the guy certainly still has legs in the middleweight division, but this was kind of a big opportunity for him that, that passed by, didn't it? It really did. And I, I think that given his age and where he's at in his career, you, you got to wonder, uh, is that the last we're going to see of him fighting for the belt? As we said before, you know, you never know what can happen. Somebody falls out of a fight. They need you to, to step up and he's fought in two different divisions. So he already always has that going on for him. But if you told me, you know, Leo Machida got his last shot at UFC gold there and, and came up just a little bit short. I wouldn't have a hard time believing that. And in a way, it feels kind of unfair because it seems like we are going to remember him as the guy who, you know, he won a title, didn't hold on to it for very long, had a couple failed bids at, at other titles. Um, but it, it seems like he's one of those guys who is better than just that those, the hard statistics on paper suggest. Yeah, I thought we would get a chance to talk about Vitor Belfort in this round, but um, you know what? I bet we're going to get an opportunity to talk about that at some point in the future. I have a feeling you're right. Uh, Sir Nigel Longstock is here. He's going to come in and lead us in another rendition of Master Tweet Theater. And that starts right now. Well, it's that time again. We welcome back to the show friend of the podcast and noted theatricalist, Sir Nigel Longstock. Sir Nigel, how are you? Good day to you, sir. I am tanned and restless. Well, uh, I believe one of those, at least. Uh, I guess it's been a while. haven't seen you since Saturday night when you were over at my house uh, eating a bunch of pie and shouting at the TV. I had a fantastic time. Pie just flying out of my mouth and hitting your stupid family. <laughs> yes, yes, well... Uh, for those of you who don't know how this works, Sir Nigel's going to read us off some tweets uh, from people in the MMA sphere. Chad and I are going to try and guess who those people are. Uh, I hesitate to ask, but is there a theme this week? Yes, sir, there is. The theme is commercial interests. Oh, God. What you... <laughs> I guess, why do I even ask him if there's a theme? Because you know he's just going to say some shit and he's not going to stick to it. It's a yeah. good theme this time. I actually blame you. I think that's sort of a you problem. Yeah. Playing right into his hands every week. <laughs> that's true. That's on me. All right. Well, whenever you're ready for us to find out just how quickly you will deviate from your own chosen theme, hit us with the first one. Oh, ye of little faith. Incidentally, there are six tweets in this week's Master Tweet Theater. Because, what are you trying to pull? Because one of them is a gimme. You'll both know it. It's an exposition tweet. Okay. All right. All right. I can appreciate that. <clears throat> but it's not this one. The first one is hard. <laughs> okay. Tweet the first. <clears throat> Thanks to everyone who supported Zelen. We'll keep you posted with our upcoming wholesale plan now that the store is closed. Wait, supported what? Zelen. Can you spell that? Z-E-L-I-N. Never heard of it, right? The store is closed. <laughs> okay, Chad, you got any ideas here? Uh, can we hear the tweet one more time? <clears throat> yes. Thanks to everyone who supported Zelen. 
We will keep you updated with our upcoming wholesale plan now that the store is closed. So, whatever this is, it's closed now, and they're going to try and sell off whatever it is they have, even though people clearly didn't want it in the first place. Well, obviously, the product is sound. It's the store. That's what closed. Okay, uh... Maybe, it feels like maybe one of Rich Franklin's side business interests? Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking, especially since Sir Nigel loves to bring in Rich Franklin's side business tweets. He does. But, like, as far as we know, he was just running a juice bar, right? And what would you wholesale out of a juice bar besides the juice? Oh, well, I don't know. Zillin could be anything. It could be absolutely anything. Huh. Well, who are you going to guess? I'm saying Rich Franklin. Okay. Uh, Zellin. I'm going to go uh, Randy Couture. Maybe he had a store. I don't know. The other Rich Franklin, as for our right, tr- purposes sure. on Master Tweet Theater. Hmm. Both fine guesses, both grounded in pure speculation. Only one correct. It is Rich Franklin. What? I, I mean, we both knew that, right? <laughs> what, I, is, what is Zillin? Good question, sir. I believe it has something to do with his juice bar, perhaps a nutritional supplement, but, but no one really knows. Now I'm kind of worried about Rich Franklin's juice bar. Do we know anything about the health of that? I assume that it too is closed. I believe that's the physical store because whenever I saw a picture of it, there was just Rich Franklin in there. Uh, <laughs> the dude got a new gig. You can't expect to stay in the juice business when you're over there running 1FC. Uh, this worries me. This is a troubling development, but let's move on. I'm sure 1FC is a much more viable business than a juice bar. <clears throat> Tweet the second. Saturday, I unveil the Revolution Shoe. Can't wait. Dream come true. Can't believe I have a shoe. <laughs> you, you people listening to this at home can't see Sir Nigel's facial expressions during that. But I, what I liked about it, the subtlety, uh, was like how you seemed like when you were taking on the character of the tweeter in question, you could also not believe that any of this was happening. You really owned that part. I can't believe it. And that is the actor's art. I've had my own line of shoes for years. <laughs> Just another day to me. Uh, okay, Chad, you want to go? Yeah, I'm going to go pretty Tony Pettis here because I know that he recently scored a Reebok sponsorship and he's a guy that likes to tweet a lot about his product. Damn it, he did just just secure some kind of sponsorship. Uh, I'm going to say the other guy in MMA I know who has some kind of shoe bullshit, uh, Rampage Jackson. Both fine guesses, but this one a dark horse, Daniel Cormier, oh. has his own shoe. Apparently. Well, wait a second, though. Like, It didn't say DC at the end. So Uh-oh. how are we supposed to know that was DC tweeting that? In fact, it did say DC. <laughs> oh, you motherfucker! I left it off. And you didn't even mention that there was something redacted? Yes. No. No, I didn't. I made it more difficult. But just like your aunt, Daniel Cormier signs all of his phone communications. Oh, man. Well, I'm going to go. I'm going to have to file a grievance with the <laughs> Master Tweet Theater uh, committee, the, the whatever it is, the executive board of director. I don't know. I look forward to that. Men with hoods will respond to your grievance during the night. <laughs> Tweet the third. All the best to Ronda Rousey tonight in her fight. The Expendables crew is in her corner. Not literally, because Dana wouldn't allow that. Oh, well, okay, we gotta, we I got this one. one. Randy Couture, also known as the other Rich Franklin. It is, it is Randy Couture. Pretty easy, even for you. Okay, so this was the exposition tweet? No, no, what? it was not. There's there's another one coming okay. that you both know even better than that. All right, let's move on then. <clears throat> tweet the fourth. Uh, you'll get some context here to help you. This tweeter is advertising an Android app for himself. Okay. His own personal Android app. 
Oh yeah! Now everybody can see what's going down! Only for my ride or die. No haters are welcome. Now that, that sounds like a Rampage Jackson tweet. Even though when he first read it, it had the kind of Macho Man Randy Savage thing to it, but... You know how Rambage Jackson is super into his 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 writers, no no haters. Yeah, when we first heard the context, I was all ready to go Bruce Buffer, since he's exactly the kind of dude that would have an app. Uh oh boy, I don't know. Pat Barry? I don't I don't know. Not a bad guess, Sir Nigel? Both fine guesses, only one correct. It is Rampage Jackson. Boom. Who has an app? For some reason. Yeah, do we get any sense about what the app is or what it does? You know, I thought about downloading it, but then I decided to live. <laughs> oh, how nice. All right, here we are. We are already at our exposition tweet. Oh, good. This one is just for the folks listening at home, since you guys probably will recognize it. <clears throat> get you get it up and go pills at the UFC Fan Expo in honor of the late Sterling Nitisuma. That's Stefan Bonner. Yeah, that's that's Stefan Bonner. Uh, I think purposefully misspelling his own name, right? Uh, or is he unironically hawking some kind of uh, nutritional pill, even though he's a known multiple-time steroid user? Yeah, he spelled it Stefan Boner, so I assume that the pills he was advertising were uh, male, ma- enhancement? male enhancement pills. Yeah, so marital uh, aid. And then also the end of the tweet is a shout out to a former MMA fighter and uh, exotic dancer who was tragically killed last year. Oh, no. Tasteful. <laughs> Very tasteful. But yes, the tweet does begin, get you Stefan Boner. Huh. I don't know what to make of that at all. I think he's threatening us. <laughs> get you Stefan Boner, he says to his own penis, sternly. <laughs> <clears throat> wow. All right. Now tweet the fifth. The real tweet the fifth. <clears throat> this is a uh, one well-known MMA fighter tweeting to another. You're a just being lazy dick. I need a solid. I never ask you for anything ever. Wait a minute. Wait, is this what I think it is, Chad? Well, I hope there's no trouble in paradise here, because <laughs> you'd think that that would either be the poet Philip Baroni uh-huh. or... The War Machine, John Copenhaver. Or the poet Philip Maroney tweeting to War Machine. Or vice versa. Yeah, that's what I was getting well, at. okay. Uh, Sir Nigel? It is Phil Baroni to War Machine, and I am worried. Uh-oh. What's if, going on? If anything can split these two musketeers, we're all in trouble. No relationship is safe. But yes, he adjust being lazy dick. <laughs> uh, did, did you change the thing that he never asked him for anything ever or is it actually spelled that way it is spelled eva eva and in fact wow. eva is capitalized so maybe it's never ask you for anything eva <laughs> did you get any kind of sense of what's going on between these two it seems like he wanted a ride but i'm not sure <laughs> oh to fall out in such a fashion after all these years well, I guess that does it uh, for a memorable edition of Master Tweet Theater. So, Nigel, what do you got going on? You know, it's funny you should ask, sir. I've just completed shooting an exciting new project about a frustrated writer who moves to New York to become a gigolo and makes an unlikely friendship. I see. And what is it called? Permanent Midnight Cowboy. <laughs> and what role do you play? I play a wealthy dowager. <laughs> well, that was Master Tweet Theater, and that was Sir Nigel Longstock. Thank you, sir.
Well, Chad, we heard leading up to this bout that Alexis Davis presented the toughest challenge to Ronda Rousey's title reign, and that seemed like it might end up being true for about two and a half seconds. Then she got punched in her head, kneed in her gut, thrown down, and beaten into unconsciousness uh, right before she came to just in time to get a body lock on uh, a mid-celebration Ronda Rousey. 16 goddamn seconds, Chad. That's how long it took. Uh, are we getting to the point yet where you're going to have to throw somebody who can really press Ronda Rousey in there, or is she enough of a superstar that people don't even care, that people kind of like just seeing her run through people like some old Mike Tyson shit, uh, and they'll keep paying for it even if the fights are clearly not going to be competitive? Well, that's an interesting question, and I think it might be the big question for the UFC and, and Ronda Rousey in terms of how to proceed with her fight career. It's interesting that you bring up Mike Tyson because uh, did it seem to you like it did to me that that uh the maybe not the UFC but but some people are trying to like build a connection there a little bit like tacitly try to associate Ronda Rousey with Mike Tyson style performances maybe so that uh it is okay that she goes out and whips in everybody's ass in under a minute because I saw you know a few people at least pre-fight kind of comparing her to Mike Tyson her her camp is decked out in Mike Tyson roots of fight gear pretty much all all during fight week it just seemed like and maybe I'm imagining this but you know when you try to figure out why the UFC always has Mike Tyson hanging around uh you know aside from the fact that that the guys who own the company are, are big kind of old school boxing guys and probably just like to, to hang around with Mike Tyson. Like if there's any utility in having Mike Tyson hang around the UFC all the time, would it be to sort of cast Ronda Rousey as this like Mike Tyson style figure who just sort of uh, is able to be financially successful because of her dominance? Well, then it seems like you're setting her up for a colossal fall, are you not? Given how the Mike Tyson story played out? Yeah, maybe not exactly the same way, yeah. uh, but I think you make a valid point, although the, certainly the fight promotion business has never really uh, troubled itself with setting someone up for, for an enormous fall. Yeah, not really interested in the long game, you're saying? Yeah. Because, I mean, I think that one of the things that goes along with the whole Tyson uh, allure of going in there and just intimidating people and beating the hell out of them uh, in a few seconds is what we later learned about Mike Tyson was that he was kind of a classical bully in that uh, as soon as you found somebody who wouldn't be intimidated and wouldn't just crumple and, and play the, the role of the guy there to get smashed uh, and would actually give it back to him and and do the exact same stuff right back to him, uh, he didn't do that well. You know, I think that that's the kind of thing that if you want to make those comparisons, you've got to be prepared for people to make all the comparisons. And I don't really think you want that. I think it's way better to just uh, deal with Ronda Rousey as Ronda Rousey rather than as some kind of blonde Mike Tyson. Yeah, uh, and clearly she's getting better and better and more and more well-rounded as she goes along. I don't know if you took in any of the embedded stuff uh, this week from the U UFC videos, but like pretty much everywhere she went, uh, she was like throwing play punches with with her uh, striking coach and with her team. And it seemed like as I was watching it, I just started to think like, oh, okay, so she's going to come out against Alexis Davis, knowing that she essentially has nothing to fear. And she's going to try to use some of these new toys that she has in the striking game. Because you always hear about, you know, people talking about what a good striker she is and how how her, her stand-up game is really coming along. And then, sure enough, she comes out and does it. And really, I think, um, if not knocked Alexis Davis out with that uh, cross that she hit her with, certainly stunned her and, you know, put her on that road before she even locked in the judo throw and... uh 
and then, you know, pounded her out on the floor. And if you're Ronda Rousey and uh, you have even a rudimental striking game that's good enough to stun someone or to make them uh, momentarily forget what they're doing, like that's kind of all it takes for you to be able to get inside with this, uh, uh, you know, young child prodigy judo that you have that you've been working on your entire life. Like all you have to do is throw someone out of their game for a split second and uh, they're going for the ride. Yeah, that's true. It also, though, still seems like uh, if there's a weakness in Ronda Rousey's game, it's that she doesn't seem to mind being hit. Like her head just stays right where it is when she comes in to, to throw her punches. And if you're willing to, to stand there and trade with her, you won't have a hard time finding it. It makes me wonder how she would do against somebody like Holly Holm or Cyborg. Well, see, and that's the question. I, well, you brought this up at the beginning of the round. Uh, is Ronda Rousey going to remain viable as certainly as like a main event draw if the only people that they have around to fight her are people that she's going to beat in, in 16 seconds because you can only trump people like Alexis Davis up as her greatest t- attest to date so many times before the public starts to call bullshit on it. And I think the number of times that they've done it already is probably the limit well so but it also makes you think that the usc is not terribly concerned about that like even and i know that like dana white got mad about the question from the guys in the truck those troublemakers uh about whether she would be willing to turn around and fight in a month's time uh to save usc 176 but you realize when they're asking that question they don't have an opponent in mind like they don't have anybody for that there's just hey will you show up Will you show up and, and beat some some helpless scrub up uh, to help us sell tickets and sell pay-per-views and uh, maintain the illusion that this is something worth paying for? Like, that tells you that the UFC, at least on some level, is thinking of it as just like Ronda Rousey versus Warm Body. Like, they're not maybe all that concerned with finding a legitimate challenge for her because they feel like her superstar status is enough to get the job done. Yeah, maybe they would do it just carnival style where if you just came out of the audience and put a nickel in like a, a piggy bank, <laughs> you got to go in the cage with Ronda Rousey, and if you lasted a minute, you got like a teddy bear full of sawdust. Yeah. Something like that. Uh, well, here and here's the other question, too, is like, and this is the kind of thing that dogs Ronda Rousey every time she goes out there, uh, and that's that we don't know how long she's going to stick around in the fight game. Clearly, she's got a lot of other opportunities right now, uh, and they had, you know, they had already promised her this vacation uh, between now and uh, the end of the year pay-per-view, which is one of the reasons, like, why that question from the guys in the truck felt really unfair, especially when, as Greg Jackson would say, Ronda Rousey was just starting to get some fans, like the people (laughs) had just started cheering for her, and then to ask her this post-fight interview question that essentially has no good answer, since you know she already has plans to go do other stuff, she's already been promised this... uh, this time off. And so to put her on the spot, like kind of left her no option. Um, but I mean, the, the idea that, that, uh, the end of the year pay-per-view even could be her last fight is this thing that, that sort of, uh, hangs around her head. So maybe, you know, maybe it, it isn't a concern to be able to, to say that you've got Holly Holm or Chris Cyborg out there to fight, that if you can get Kat Zingano or Gina Carano to sign on the dotted line for that, that end of the year show, I don't know, man. Maybe that's it. Uh, you did it. You said the G word. You said the GC word. You just had to do it, huh? Well, I know that negotiations with her have stalled, yeah. according to state-run TV. Almost uh, as if she never fucking intended to do it in the first place. <laughs> but How about that? You know, every time we talk to Ronda Rousey about it, clearly she understands that that would be a big money fight that she would win easily. So easily. So the door's still open. 
Yeah, well, I mean, but I mean, of course she would say that. It's like saying, like, hey, would you walk across the street to pick up a duffel bag with $2 million in it? Like, yeah, of course you're, you're going to be all about that if you're Ronda Rousey. I mean, the way I see it right now, uh, there's three fights for her. One is Kat Zingano, who earned that number one contender spot. I could see why the UFC feels like after the, the length of time she's been off, you need to get her out there to fight somebody else and beat somebody else. And so people remember who she is and, and why she deserves to fight Ronda Rousey. And you just, I mean, Ronda Rousey's a, a tough opponent. Even if you're sharp and ready and been competing regularly, really tough if you've been dealing with personal turmoil like Kat Zingano has and you're coming off that knee surgery. Uh, you've also, assuming that they can sign Holly Holm, who we're told, uh, coincidentally, right around the time that we hear that negotiations with Gina Carano have stalled, negotiations with Holly Holm are, are proceeding well. Huh. Uh, yeah, how about it's that? It's funny how that works. Yeah, uh, that's, that's an interesting fight. Uh, and then, you know, if you could make it, the last resort to make a whole bunch of goddamn money is to find some way to, to have her fight Cyborg, whether it's uh, catch weight or Ronda going up in weight or giving Cyborg time to come down in weight. Uh, but you got to think that the USC is, if they're thinking about that at all, it's as a possible end game kind of thing. Like, all right, when we have gotten all we can get out of the golden goose here, then we go ahead and take our chances in the Cyborg fight. Yeah, and I, you saw the first crack in the facade this weekend when, when Dana White, uh, w for the first time, I think, was really willing to even entertain the idea and, like, per his usual style, cast it in this really weird way where he was like, well, if we do sign her, I don't want to hear any bullshit from the media about, like, drug, hear drug history or whatever, which is a totally weird thing for him to say since that's all he's been talking about yes. with her for, like, the last six months is to be like, oh, we couldn't sign her. She's totally on a bunch of steroids. And then for him to be like, well, if we do sign her, I don't want to hear any bullshit about steroids. It's yeah. like, Meanwhile, uh, uh, Chell is laying low and living his life. He's going to be fine. Let's do uh, Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we will move on to round number three. Ben, speaking of Chael Sonnen, this week, my Are You Fucking Kidding Me? has to go out to the dudes uh, from Metamorris, the uh, submission grappling federation where Chael Sonnen is scheduled to make an appearance on August 9th against Andre Galvao. You might think all of this trouble with the PEDs that Chael just got himself in with the HGH and the uh, EPO might knock him out of that fight. But oh, no. He's still scheduled to appear, and I just want to read the uh, the official statement from Hollick Gracie, uh, one of the guys that runs Metamorris, and here it is. We're not cutting Chael Sonnen from Metamorris 4 on August 9th. Why not? Because we don't currently test for PEDs, and we are not an MMA organization. Metamorris is a grappling event with different rules, and we re require our own set of regulations for all aspects of participation. We're concerned about the issue of PEDs overall, but we have a lot of research and work to do before accurately defining our stance. Due to the instability and controversy surrounding the regulation of PEDs, we are taking our time to discover the best approach and fit for our organization huh are you fucking kidding me dude <laughs> i really uh i look forward to hearing more about what they uncover with their research yeah and what their organizational stance turns out to be yeah uh i don't know if you noticed but when dana white's comments about chael sonan he was saying that you know not only was he laying low and living his life but that you know he's apologized and he's moving on it's weird i must have missed the apology because when I heard he was going on TV and making the Fox Sports interviewer apologize to him, and then in the statement that Ariel Helwani had when he uh, found out that he had uh, tested positive for EPO and HGH, uh, he seemed to be trying to frame it as if, like, yeah, that was all part of the prescription program that his doctor gave him. Didn't really recall any, like, hey, I screwed up, did a terrible thing, and I'm sorry. 
but that maybe I just missed that one. Maybe yeah. I was sick that day. Could be. You could have been out. Yeah. Maybe I'm, you'll you can ask him when he comes back. Yeah, my internet must have gone down that day. Uh, well, Chad. This week, my Are You Fucking Kidding Me must go out to the aforementioned Dude Wipes. Oh. Uh, dude Wipes seem to have been out in force in Vegas uh, during uh, International Fight Week, Red, White, and Fight Week, uh, as I know you like to call it. Uh, and I saw a tweet from Dude Wipes. Uh, Wait, it, are you following Dude Wipes on Twitter no, now? No, I can't remember. Somebody must have retweeted it. Uh, uh-huh. I'm not sure how I found That's it. That's a likely story. Um, but... The tweet says, chillin' poolside with at T. Woodley and at Sugar Rashad Evans in Vegas. No big deal. Dude dude life. Hashtag dude life. Uh, and the picture is of Phil Davis and Rashad Evans. Uh, huh. I do, Wait, so where's Tyron Woodley? Is I do there? not see Tyron Woodley. I'm hmm. pretty sure that is Phil Davis. Uh, and they're talking to some girls in bikinis. And whoever is taking the picture is just holding up a little uh, packet of dude wipes in the foreground of the picture. Basically, like it seems without their knowledge. Uh, and snapping the picture. And who knows, maybe blowing up their spots. Because they seem to be chatting up some ladies there uh, with this the dude wipes held up in the foreground. Are you fucking kidding me, dude wipes? Are you fucking kidding me? You can't even get the dudes you're trying to use to promote your product to hold the dude wipes themselves. You just got to hold it up in front of them, thereby suggesting that they need to wipe their balls down. you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? Well, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Ben, when the organizers of Red Bled and Fight Week, whatever it was called, Red... See, that's Red, already better. Blue. When the organizers of Red, <laughs> White, and Fight Week dreamed up the climax of a week-long gay law affair from the UFC, I doubt that they envisioned it ending with just barrels full of melancholy for everyone. But that's what happened in the main event of the Ultimate Fighter Season 19 live finale uh, when Frankie Edgar pretty much beat a listless and strange-looking BJ Penn from pillar to post en route to a third-round TKO victory. Uh, and then everything got real heartfelt with BJ Penn uh, re-retiring from mixed martial arts and then coming to the uh, post-fight press conference and breaking down when someone asked him about what he thought his legacy was going to be. Uh, so just a sort of a legitimately touching scene there to see a guy who's been in the game and has been as good as BJ Penn uh, finally call it quits. I guess uh, what's your number one takeaway from this from this uh like kind of emotionally rot scene to end the weekend where we saw back-to-back UFC events. Well, first of all, when you say finally call it quits, you mean finally call it quits for like the third time. Like he's yeah, retired after third, every right? one of his last like last three losses. Oh, I didn't realize that this was his third retirement. He retired after Nick Diaz won and then Roy McDonald challenged him. Oh, uh, yeah, and, good point. And then he came back for that one. Then he retired after the Roy McDonald one. Well, I'm uh, going to say that makes it feel a little less heartfelt. But, you know, still a sad scene. Uh, but this one too, uh, you know, all due respect to BJ Penn, he looked awful. 
really there's no way around that. I mean, and, and I don't think that, that I'm not saying that to diminish anything he's done before this point. I, I do agree that BJ Penn uh, deserves to be regarded as a legend of this sport. And definitely, uh, I mean, you look at his win loss record. I think he's like 16, 10 and two. You would think like a guy who is only won slightly more than half the professional bouts he's been in would not be regarded as highly, but I think that that doesn't tell the whole story. I mean, he's been yeah. a guy who has fought in a bunch of different weight classes. Uh, and most of his losses came outside of his natural weight class, it was 155. Uh, and I think, you know, this was kind of a symptom of all the things that have, we've seen throughout his career where he, his ambition sometimes gets the better of him. And he, and he talks himself into thinking, okay, I can cut down to, to featherweight and I can be a champion in a third division. Uh, which at his age and the way that you know the game has kind of progressed since uh, his prime is just not realistic. And we saw it out there, like when he came out there immediately in that weird, really straight up and down stance and really just didn't do much, didn't have that, that kind of speed and, and didn't really have a, a great strategy for dealing with Frankie Edgar. And it was as if somebody else was just borrowing BJ Penn's body and had no clue what to do with it. Yeah, I saw somebody on Twitter compare him to a boxing kangaroo, which was oh, wow. like kind of sadly accurate because you know, BJ Penn really did come out there looking like John L. Sullivan, like he thought he and Frankie Edgar were going to fight 100 one-minute rounds. He's going to step on a napkin. In the back of a saloon somewhere. The winner was going to get a plug of chewing tobacco. Uh, but yeah, you know... I'm, I, as soon as it was over and, and like BJ Penn came to the press conference and kind of didn't really want to talk about the cut to 145, everybody said he made it easily. But like I started to wonder if maybe we weren't even dealing with a, like a pre-existing physical injury kind of situation here. Uh, because he, BJ Penn looked bizarre in this fight. Like yeah. he looked so bad. It was almost, I feel like he looked almost so bad that you couldn't even just chalk it up to age because like he looked, he was, he fought with a completely different stance than we've ever seen from him before. Like he seemed to have a completely different strategy than we've ever seen from him before. You know, his, his, a lot of times his fights in the past have been typified by his kind of ruthless aggression and, and like heavy handed striking style. And in this one, he was, like you said, standing straight up and down and, you know, trying to throw single counters to Frankie Edgar's, uh, you know, two and three punch combos and like, honestly, like almost looking like he wanted Frankie Edgar to take him down. Uh, and then when they did hit the ground, it, he didn't really have anything off his back either. I just wondered, like, is there something BJ Penn's not telling us about this fight? Because he's also the kind of dude uh, who is proud and classy enough to like not blame his retirement loss on an injury. But he just seemed so weird to me that it, it I almost think there's got to be something else going on. Well, I, I mean, maybe you'd hope that there is. It was really sad in a a different way, I think, than most of the the fights we see where a guy shows up and it's suddenly clear that he's too old and needs to retire and needs to get out of the sport because it, it was just no offense from him, and you just kind of wondered, you know, why why come back to do this? And then I think I got a little insight into it when he was explaining afterwards how. Uh, you know, he seemed to say right away in the cage, even that yeah, it was a mistake. I shouldn't have been here. Yeah, I, I shouldn't, shouldn't have, have come back. Uh, you know, but it seemed like he was saying afterwards that you know I think I, I needed to get closure, and that the worst thing would have been if I didn't get back in here. I would have always wondered like if I still could do it, and now I know for sure that I can't. Right. Uh, and that is really like that hits you. Hits yes. you. Hits you yeah. right in the the, the heart area because. Man, that seems to be the case for so many of those guys, and maybe they're just they don't know how to put it into words quite the way he did. But where uh, they they need to go out there and get beat up 
just because like that to them is not anywhere near as bad as having doubts about whether you could still do it. Yeah, and that you know that was yet another kind of heartfelt moment, and and kind of made the whole fight a little bit more understandable when when he said that. But you know, this was a fight that it was an unorthodox booking from the start. We all kind of wondered why uh, Frankie Edgar would need to fight BJ Penn for a third time, but it wasn't necessarily one that we were all up in arms about before it happened. And yet, as it unfolded, I'm not sure that I've ever been around a fight where the regret seemed to be as fast acting or pervasive as we saw in this fight, because it wasn't just, you know, fans. It wasn't just the media kind of cringing about the mismatch here. It seemed like both Frankie Edgar and BJ Penn realized as the fight was going on that this was a fight that did not need to happen because Frankie Edgar won the damn thing. And the first thing he says to John Anik in the cage is, Oh, it's a bittersweet, bittersweet victory. I kind of feel bad about it. It seemed yeah. like everybody involved, including Herb Dean, realized we don't need to do this. I think uh, we, we should give Herb Dean a little credit there because it seemed like he saw the writing on the wall there too. And instead of uh, waiting longer, which you could have done, um, because it's not like, you know, BJ Penn was mounted and, and or, you know, turtled up and, and not doing anything. I mean, he still had the guy kind of in his guard and some kind of a, a defense happening. But it seemed like Herb Dean saw that as well. It was like, well, there's no need for us just to see uh, how many elbows to the dome he can take. Let's, let's go ahead and end it. Uh, but you're all right that it was this kind of fast acting regret. Uh, I think in a way comparable to that Roy Nelson uh, big nog fight. Uh, where that one was a really bad knockout and it was like immediately like it set in like, oh God, this was a terrible idea. But it, you didn't really hear people saying that beforehand as much. But this one, since it took a little longer to play out, you saw, you know, the first round is kind of weird. The second round, it's clear that things are probably not going to get much better for BJ Penn. The third round, just the sadness starts to set in. Uh, and, and it really was, I mean, one of the things though that I thought was weird was how many people I see like afterwards just saying like, well, we remember BJ Penn as being better than he was. Uh, and because, you know, you look at the last few years for him, I mean, the last win was in 2010 over Matt Hughes. So uh, I can see why some people say that. But I think that you need to instead think of BJ Penn as uh, a dude who was pretty amazing in another era uh, who managed to be um, one of the, the greatest lightweight champs of all time and then better than uh, most dudes from that era uh, progressing into the next stage of MMA. Yeah, no, one of the greats for sure. And we kind of give him a hard time in the past on this, on this podcast because he's a guy who, uh, seemed like he was capable of even more. Uh, but that win that he had over Matt Hughes in, in 2004 and then, uh, you know, fighting George St. Pierre in 2006 in their first fight that, uh, where BJ kind of gave him all he could handle in that first round, uh, really should underscore how great this guy was. And I think that you said it pretty perfectly at the beginning of the round when you said that he's a guy whose ambitions kind of got the best of him. Like if he had been a guy uh, who, after that first welterweight title reign, when he got stripped of the title because he signed a deal with K1 and the UFC uh, ushered him out the door, and then he went on this kind of strange vision quest where he fought at a bunch of different weight classes, including a catchweight fight against a 225-pound Lyoto Machida. But like after that, if he had come back to the UFC and just stayed at lightweight, uh, I, I, 
almost wonder if his legacy would be even greater because, uh, you know, he just dominated the shit out of 155 pounds from about 2007 until 2010, uh, when he finally ran into Frankie Edgar the first two times. And I wonder, like, if he hadn't had this dalliance with George St. Pierre where he went back up to, to welterweight, if he hadn't gotten talked into the fights against Nick Diaz and Rory McDonald at welterweight, like, would we think of him as even better than we think of him now? Or yes. like, were those also like legacy building fights? Uh, well, maybe we need some more time to tell that that could be, but I, I do think that, uh, yeah, we, if he hadn't, uh, he hadn't done those, that it would have been easier to know where to place him, uh, especially in terms of, you know, what era of MMA he, he dominated and where he belonged. Um, because I think like you could, it'd be like if Matt Hughes went on even a little bit longer than he did and was still taking beatings from, uh, guys lower down the totem pole. I mean, it seemed like, he was one of those guys who benefited by getting out when he did. Uh, and, but BJ Penn, I mean, just in keeping with the same things that, that made him go on that strange vision quest, uh, and made him want to fight dudes like Leota Machida. I mean, that, that's a dude who just was never turning down a fight, uh, with anybody. And, uh, it's just not in that guy to dominate one weight class. I mean, that's the kind of guy who he's always going to want to try and see what he can do. Uh, and you know, he, he's the kind of guy who has to run up against a beating in order for him to know that it's over. And I, it seems to me that at least some of the shocking nature of this fight may have been because we kind of forgot how good Frankie Edgar is. It had been exactly one year since the last time he fought. He had that decision against Charles Oliveira. But before that, he had lost three straight, the two very, very close fights to uh, Benson Henderson and then cut down to featherweight and, and fought Jose Aldo about as well as anybody has, although ended up losing uh, a unanimous decision. But in this fight, and clearly against a guy who kind of uh, – made him look great but like this is a performance for frankie edgar where you remember oh yeah frankie edgar is really really good he's got those slick boxing combinations he gets out of the way before his opponent can return fire and his transitions between the striking and the takedowns are are pretty damn slick yeah and, and i mean i i do think that we talked beforehand and it was the i believe the uh uh unverified listener mail rant about that that if there's ever a no-win situation, this was kind of it for Frankie. I mean, not only do you just beat the guy you already beat twice for a third time, um, but in the way it went down, you know, it's just kind of a, a crushing thing for everybody. Even you can't feel that good about it if you're Frankie Edgar. Uh, I guess the best thing you can say is that it's over now and you can move on. Yeah, and he will move on, and, and he'll fight somebody in, a, in the Chad Mendez, Cub Swanson, Jose Aldo-type realm. Uh, so we'll see what happens to him next. Ben, let's do Just Saying Stuff, and then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, what's your Just Saying Stuff for uh, for this week? Well, Chad, I'm just saying I know that you saw the light heavyweight Ultimate Fighter finale where Corey Beeston 25-8 Anderson yep. uh, beat Matt Van Buren, who uh, trains at Alliance MMA and lives in Chula Vista, California, which uh, apparently to Corey Anderson is a Beverly Hills upscale type lifestyle, uh, which you can only say if you've never been to Chula Vista, California. Uh, but I'm just saying, so you want us to believe that you are Beeston one more hour than there is in the day for one more day than there is in the week. Yeah, it's 25 extra hours. Well, okay. First of all, I'm just saying you're not beasting that much. All right. You know, at, at come on. Maybe if you were beasting 12 hours a day, that would be impressive because I'd be like, man, that's like, that's putting in overtime every single day. If you were beasting 12 7, I would still be concerned that that was a little too much beasting. 
Uh, but when you just take it and blow it way out of proportion with 25.8, I question whether you're beasting at all. Wow. I'm just saying. You're just saying. Oddly enough, Ben, my just saying stuff also about Corey Anderson this week. Uh, he's a guy, obviously, who came into the Ultimate Fighter with just four professional fights, had won all of them. He's a decorated wrestler, but admitted leading up to this, uh, uh, tough finale fight that when he came to the ultimate fighter house, he didn't really know what he was doing in fighting and is a guy who seems like he has a ton of potential and clearly a great skill set to fall back on. But I'm just saying, I have to wonder about the, the utility of having a dude who's just five and O oh and admits that he doesn't know what he's doing when the ultimate fighter, because now that dude is a UFC fighter. And it seems like, uh, he is gonna get tossed into the deep end, maybe a little bit over his head, and is gonna be a real nightmare for UFC matchmakers to find guys who seem legitimate, but at the same time, uh, he has a chance of beating in the octagon. Uh, I'm just saying, even if he is beasting 316, or 20, 29, 411, whatever his nickname is, seems like it's gonna be a tall order for Corey Anderson to be able to keep his head above water. Just saying. Well, that's going to do it for the co-main event podcast this week. We'll be back next week to uh, talk about all the MMA news and notes. No event next week, this weekend, right? Hallelujah. Yeah. That's why uh, our wives have circled this uh, weekend on the calendar to go out of town because they don't have to sit around and watch us uh, stare at the TV while they take care of our children. That's right. I'm off this week. Are you off? This week? Yeah. Get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> Woo. Anyway, we'll be back next week. But as for right now, we're done. We are through. We are out. Seriously, if you say, like, saying I'm beast in 24, 25, 8, it's like saying, like, oh, I've slept with 3,000 women. That makes me think you're a virgin. You never slept with anybody. <laughs>